because I think that there's a stigma in my own world and having you know dealt mm. with numerous different lawyers that lawyers aren't exactly popular. But we're the nicest. You yeah, definitely, definitely are the nicest. Are the nicest. <laughs> yeah, by a mile. Um. <laughs> <laughs> What's up, hustlers? Welcome to the Matt Brown Show. So if you're an entrepreneur running your own business, at some point on your journey, you will have a run-in with the law. No, I'm not talking about drunk driving, although knowing quite a few of my audience, I'm sure that will apply to some of you. But what I'm actually referring to are legal issues, risks and challenges that you'll encounter as you scale your business. I call them pinches. Because most entrepreneurs don't know that they are in a legal pinch until it's too late. And this can wind up costing you, the entrepreneur, your hard-earned cash when you need it most. So I reached out to my legal team, Natalie and Lucy from Concilium Legal, to discuss how entrepreneurs can avoid winding up in legal troubles. And we also share the backstory to their new podcast series called The Pinch, where they share real stories of entrepreneurs and businesses navigating the ever-changing legal structure of South Africa and how you can leverage the law to avoid landing up in a pinch of your own. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Natalie and Lucy, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having us, Matt. Always a pleasure, never a chore. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) So today we're going to talk about law, and it's an aspect on my show that I haven't really explored too much in the context of entrepreneurship. So I have with me, of course, Nat and Luce, as I like to refer to them. Um, They've been doing some legal work for me, and they do a lot of work for a lot of agencies, creative companies. We're going to jump into that a bit more. So why don't you guys give us yes. your backstory? Um, well, who are you? What do you guys do? And how did you get to being the heads of Concilium Legal? Okay. So um, both Natalie and myself um, uh, did articles at one of the big five um, law firms where we stayed after articles. Uh, I then left and went to join RMB where I was in-house counsel for about six years. And, um, Natalie stayed on at the, at the law firm. We then, dis- we then identified that there was this huge gap in, in the market around. Well, first we got bored and then we identified. Yeah. First we got bored. Absolutely. And then we identified that there was this big gap between utilizing, um, an attorney that's in the law firm counsel versus being an in-house attorney in a corporate environment. And we saw that there's this really big divide. When you're an in-house counsel, you have to get really involved in the, in, in the businesses, in, in the business of the company that you're working in, in order to advise them. Um, and you take more business proactive role than just legal advising. And when you work at a firm, it's very much a reactive kind of process where you wait for an instruction. You don't do anything more than you're instructed because otherwise you have to charge for that extra thing and the client didn't ask for that extra thing. So it's a very standoffish back, stand back type of attitude um, when you're in a firm. So that was definitely our experience. Maybe, maybe other attorneys have come further in recent years, but we've been doing this now as we just discussed with Matt for seven years. So... I'm sure there's been some leaps and bounds and improvements in the legal field, but we like to think we were pioneers. Yeah. Own it. Stop what's law. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, and what we found is that filling that gap has actually been really useful to a lot of our clients. It's so what what we like to do is act as if we are in house counsel and really understand our clients' business, so that they can call us and ask us questions kind of on the fly, and we're able to advise them without having a formal instruction and then formally responding and having this kind of very legalistic relationship. Um, and what we really like to do is try and make that reach that space where business meets the law. So it's a combination. We kind of dial down the legalese and dial up the business side of it so that it's user-friendly for our clients. Cool, I love it. So um, what kind of law do you guys practice, I mean, at Concilium? So I know you specialize in creative companies. Is that fair to say or is it broader? Yeah, so it is broader, but we do have a a specialization in creative marketing. Why though? Why creative? Is that because they suck at basically marketing and law or like what's the deal? Yeah, so I think it's a combination of things, but um, we we kind of fell into the industry and we really enjoyed it. We really liked the way people worked and we found that they completely and actually shied away from any legal contracts or any legal principles simply because – their, their experience had very much been that um, it's an expensive and very standoffish relationship with a, with a law firm and they didn't have experience of having their own in-house counsel. And also quite it, – it just doesn't fit in with the creative space. They just view a, a lawyer as like this intimidating figure in a black suit that they don't really want to interact with, that doesn't really understand them, that just wants to tell them everything that they can't do and how they will be in trouble and open themselves up to a lot of risk, which we found and we've got feedback, as you know um, – from being the voice of reason on the pinch that we have enabled a lot of businesses, um, especially in this small to medium enterprise space in the creative economy to, to move forward with their business and made them more agile whilst also protecting them from risk because we understand and we realize that there's always going to be an element of risk. And if we had to tell you everything you couldn't do, you would never do any business. So we, we like to think that we've really enabled our clients. Well, you have, and I think the, it's uh, to your point around blind spots. It's like the last thing you think about, you know. Even in my business, um, historically, and you guys know the story. Remember, I mm. uh, worked with uh, a company down in Cape Town to draft me a legal document, which wasn't drafted properly. And what happened was, it cost me two hundred and forty thousand rand uh, in ouch in yeah lost revenue because essentially there were clauses that were blah blah fucked up essentially yeah Um, and if i remember we had a look at that um well we had a brief discussion with you about that agreement and the agreement itself was actually quite a good document It was drafted by it was very legally correct and it was drafted by a a, a top lawyer however the problem that had come in because the the attorney that you utilized didn't understand your business and your business process and how you actually did deliver a service and gave you a document that didn't suit the way you delivered and therefore it's all coming flooding back to me now (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Lucy. (laughs) But that's exactly it, right? Um, So either you're not thinking about it or something happens in business where you need a legal document, but you don't have it. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, Or you're working with partners who are legal partners, essentially, that don't know your business well enough or whatever the case might be. And so you're... you're And you don't have time to engage with a lawyer that is... You've got to make an appointment. They can only see you in a week. They need X amount of deposit. They're going to give you a first draft in two weeks after that. And by then, you will have lost your deal. That's it. I mean, oftentimes, you just can't afford it. Yeah. You know? So, you're not thinking about it and you can't afford it. On a time and a financial basis. Totally. You know? And so, you wind up in a pinch. 
Right. Exactly. Ah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Very well said. <laughs> <laughs> so this, this is painting a picture that we're extraordinarily cheap because <laughs> and accessible, but that that is that those are the cornerstones of Concilium that we have always wanted to be be very accessible to our client and very approachable and definitely um, cost effective and uh, market related in terms of cost. We like to charge upfront um, on an agreed project basis, which is a detour from the traditional law firm type of billing model where they charge you by the hour. It obviously has risks because you can't always estimate how long something will take you. Um, so, we, But generally, we like to go forward on an agreement basis and it gives our clients certainty and, they, and definitely a sense of comfort. And also for us, we also need the, the certainty. So it's been a, a good business model that we have built on and we are forging forward with. Cool. So I want to come back to the pinch in a sec, but I want to paint some more context for our listeners. So, um, so why is the law? Well, let me rephrase. How does one approach the law as a startup? Let's start with a startup company, right? So if I'm a five, let's just say you're a five man business. Um, you don't really have anything other than say employment contracts that you've potentially downloaded from the internet. Um, how do I know what my legal risk is or my risk profile is as a business? So a good starting point and what we like to do and I think has been of a lot of value to a lot of our clients um, is have an upfront kind of strategy session where we say, okay, this is what it's going to cost for the strategy session. And we sit there and we discuss your business and what you would need as an absolute bare minimum to get started and also what you would, what you would need as a nice to have. So we can give you a kind of overall picture and we can take you through the various risks. We can talk it out, but it's a real strategy session. We, we kind of pose questions to you that you possibly haven't thought about before so that you're kind of starting off, you, you fireproofing your business by having thought of what the end could look like and therefore protected against it. And also, from all aspects so it's like a brainstorming session where we sit in the room with you but say you are this business that has five five people in it so you would need to look at a variety of different things so what are you doing with your customers what are you in terms of agreements what are you doing with your suppliers because you may be using suppliers what are you doing internally with your employees what are their employment arrangements and internal policies look like and also what is your governance structure so are you two partners are you 50 50 do you have anything in place what happens if something happens to the one of you or you just can't get along anymore so looking at it from a governance point of view also and so that the people that are running the business understand their roles and their obligations and their potential risk so it's kind of like a brain dump session as if you had a legal person working in your business that gets the full picture and then tells you at every corner where you should go so like a blueprint for going forward stay with us we'll be right back hey there i know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience you sometimes get stuck don't you well if you're like me being stuck sucks but what if you could access the minds of over 850 ceos who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second well the good news is you can't literally do that today what my team have built is matt brown ai it is trained on all the interviews over 850 of them that i've done to date all my books 
stocks, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up, it's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. I mean, is there, is there a, a, a good place to put your money first? I mean, because if you think about governance and employee contracts and policies and potentially supplier agreements and SLAs and da da da, and there's so many different things that you need contractually with any business, right? Mm. Um, where do you start? Is it with your people because people are your best assets? Or is there another option that one should consider? Well, I think the first, the first thing we, we would ask is if you are, um, a sole shareholder or whether you've got a partner or partners because if there is more than one shareholder in the business the first place to start would be a shareholders agreement um that's that's an absolute um must because you need to have a document that clearly um defines what each person's roles responsibilities um are and what would happen like Natalie said in the event of somebody not wanting to be a shareholder anymore you're not getting along with one of them or or God forbid something actually happened to a, a particular shareholder and they couldn't work there anymore. Um, well, let's, let's maybe provide some more context through some stories. So um, feel free to mention clients and stuff. <laughs> Should we use names? If you can, yeah. For His name was Joe. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but what stories can you share? I mean, that, that anything recently that springs to mind that can kind of contextualize the kind of pain that um, entrepreneurs can get into if they don't take care of their legal housework. I, I feel like this is a great segue into the fact that we have eight more episodes on all those different pains, <laughs> interviewing all kinds of different uh, business owners. So you can listen to more of those on the pinch. But in I'll said I'll come back there later. <laughs> I'm just using it as every possible marketing opportunity I've learned from you, Matt. I'm just a lawyer. Um, but Luz, do you have a particular example that you want to illustrate um there is a particular example that uh, we actually did deal with in one of our uh, podcast episodes but i'll touch briefly on it um this was a, a situation where there were three shareholders that um had a had a business together um, they did have a shareholders agreement which was again similar to your situation a good document in isolation if you looked at the legal clauses they were correct it just didn't fit the particular situation and what ended up happening is one of the the partners passed away and the other two shareholders were suddenly thrown into a position where they, this, the deceased shareholder had left his shares to his wife and kids. And they were possibly wanting to actually become part of the business. The other two shareholders absolutely didn't want this. And they wanted to do everything they could to prevent the family members from now joining the business. That being said, the family members were only prepared not to stay in the business if they got some massive payout and there had been no mechanism in the agreement to decide what would happen if somebody passed away how you would value the shares and obviously to pr to protect against your shares passing to to your beneficiaries instead of being um, offered back to the the remaining shareholders so that was a really nasty situation nobody won in that situation the family 
felt that they didn't get paid the value they, they deserved in terms of the shares, and the remaining shareholders felt that they were paying more than they should have. It, w- it was really a no-win situation. Um, so let's talk about the pinch because it keeps coming up. So basically the whole concept was, it was a show that we produced for, for you guys, um, and it really talks about these different pinches that manifest themselves in different contexts. So this was the, that was the one story. He was that, that guy. It Jono. was John O'Buffy. John John O'Buffy, yeah, the oak with the voice. Yes. <laughs> such a voice, eh? The camel man, original camel man. <laughs> um, yeah, and so, so yeah, I mean, guys, go. Well, I'll post the show up in the show notes and that, so you can just Google or check out the pinch on iTunes or anywhere where you get your favorite podcast. Um, but let's talk more about the different pinches because I think this is such an important uh, subject to explore with you guys for entrepreneurs because as I said right in the beginning it's the one thing that we don't pay enough attention to until it's too late yeah so I definitely think that the idea of everyone goes generally guys going into go into business with their friends or a call an ex-colleague and now they're going to start a business and everything seems rosy at the outset so kind of like when you get married and you don't ever foresee that something could go wrong and how you're going to deal with it. So that's one of the most important things that you would be dealing with in your shareholders agreement or your members agreement that is saying what will happen if things don't work out. And even though no one wants to deal with that, it's really, really important. Um, like Lucy was saying in the case of someone passing away, but there's a whole lot of other eventualities that need to be considered. Like, for instance, what if someone hasn't passed away, but they're just not able to work at the same capacity they were anymore because of something else, like a dread disease. So there needs to be a whole lot of considerations taken into account, which I don't know, you wouldn't necessarily be aware of as a business owner or a startup or the Matt Brown show because, well, you're not a lawyer, you don't want to be either, and it's not something that you've thought about. So it is important. I know it's um, legal is like the stuff that no one wants to deal deal with and it's really boring and expensive and not nice, but it, it really is important. And in the long run, it would end up saving you money rather than costing you money Although I know there is there is an initial outlay, people like to wait until something's gone wrong, until the partner and them have had a fallout, or until the client hasn't paid the massive account that could really level a small business, and um, before sort of starting to sort it out, or expending money on then the dispute that arises rather than the prevention. So it's a bit of a prevention is better than cure scenario. So I want to pick up on that thing around that you mentioned now that it would actually save you money. So how should entrepreneurs view legal, legal the, the practice in general? Because I think that there's a stigma just in my own, my own world and having, you know, in, dealt mm. with numerous different lawyers is that lawyers aren't exactly popular. But we're the nicest. You yeah, definitely, definitely are the nicest. Are the nicest. <laughs> yeah, by a mile. <laughs> and now a word from the daily hustle how's it guys so i have a question for you what are you famous for and it's an interesting question to think about right in the context of entrepreneurship personal branding and your career in general so i asked that question to all my potential clients i say, what do you want to be famous for because we make them famous through branded content and storytelling and oftentimes people don't know. So earlier today, I'll give you an example. I was chatting to a potential client and I said, what do you want to be famous for? And he said, strategy. And strategy is not unique enough. It's like design, design about what? The design of a business, design of, a, of shoes. You have to be specific about it. And when you think more broadly about other brands, personal brands, Elon Musk, SpaceX, Tesla, uh, Steve Jobs, Apple, uh, in my case, Matt Brown, the Matt Brown Show. Uh, and Matt Brown Media. So 
very simply, what are you guys famous for? And are you clear around that? Because it can't be a sentence, it's got to be summed up in one word only. An interesting way to apply that kind of a principle to get to an answer is, uh, if you were to write a book in 12 months time, what would the book say? What's the cover of the book? What's the title of the book? Uh, and get clear on that. And I think that would go a long way to improving your personal brand and ultimately your reputation in the markets that you play in. This is Matt signing out and I'll see you again soon. So I think if we, I mean, obviously, traditionally, lawyers are always seen as um, somebody you go to when you're in trouble. If I've been arrested or if somebody's suing me or if I need to sue somebody else. And that's really, I think, the way most people view lawyers or understand a lawyer's role. And there's there's a big change worldwide in, in what services or what capacity a lawyer kind of functions in. And we definitely like to fill the gap that is completely different to being this, the person that you go to once something's already happened. We like to see ourselves as more of like an insurance type of consultant provider to help you prepare for possible risk so that when it does happen, you're more better, you're better equipped. Future proofing your business. Mm -hmm. It's like insurance, right? I would say. Exactly. So it's like if you're going to pay for insurance, you don't really want to, but you need to, right? So it's a grudge purchase. Yeah. So I suppose yeah, it's similar. <laughs> yeah, it's so, such a grudge purchase. Hey? But it's, um, but equally for legal services, because you, you hope, you're not going to wind up in shit, but you will at some point. Like it's Everybody, a, even lawyers, have shit at some yeah. point. Yeah. yeah, And the expense of not, like the same thing with insurance, the expense of not taking insurance on, on your car, you know, you may not have an accident, but if you do and your car's written off, then you've got a problem. It's the same thing with future-proofing your business. Mm. And, and I think what's interesting, or the, the, the takeout for especially your entrepreneurial-based listeners, is that it isn't this traditional law firm model, and that's not just what lawyers are about we are forward thinking and there are different ways to approach any situation. So it's not just necessarily a cold legal approach, but there is a lot of business strategy around the things that your lawyer, whoever that may be, can assist you with. So for instance, Lucy actually recently had a consultation with someone around uh, possibly implementing a a share incentive scheme or BEE based uh, scheme to further em employees, uh, the furtherance of the employees. And the person said, well, I really wouldn't have understood why I would ever consult an attorney for this uh, other than drawing me a document that I'm probably never going to look at. What was the point of this? But there is legal principles form the basis of business principles to an extent as well. So there is, there is a lot of strategy around the legal elements. Yeah, and I think after the consultation, he was really taken aback and his view on lawyers had changed because he said, I really just expected that I would come to you to draft the agreement once I decided from a business perspective what was the right thing to do. And hadn't, as Natalie said, considered that perhaps somebody that is a lawyer with the legal principles and business principles um, in mind can give you a holistic kind of assistance in deciding what's best for your business. And I think that is something people really don't don't realize. Law does not exist in a vacuum. Very well said. <laughs> Drops mic. I always I, I, I remember that. I always remember that from from Basti. Yeah. Law does not exist in a vacuum. No man is an island. Absolutely. And I think if people I, I bastardized that and now it's no entrepreneur is an island. Okay. Ask for help. Yes. <laughs> exactly. So what do you look for in a lawyer? I mean 
thought you, you were going to say in a client. <laughs> no, 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 in a lawyer. No, no, no. So, like, think about it, right? Because, like, I dig you guys. Obviously, spent a lot of time with you guys over the last year uh, for various reasons. Um, but if you are uncertain about taking up a legal service provider, if you apply the principle that most law is commoditized, right? Mm-hmm. There's plenty of lawyers out there who claim that they know what they do and can protect you from downside, essentially. What do you do? I mean, what do you look for? Do you look, is there a personality thing? Is there an interest in the business? Is it the fact that they specialize in the creative industry? What do entrepreneurs look for in a lawyer? Like outside of the, you know, the legal framework stuff, which is, you know. Which you don't know anything about. So I can't go, if I want to have to see an eye specialist, critique one from the other. I can only base it on, well, he seemed more believable than the other one. They kind of all performed the same tests and maybe our forum shop in CU tells me what I want to hear. But it, it really is about presentation and I would say going the extra mile to trying to understand your business and not just saying, okay, I'm going to take an instruction on this now. Let me take the notes. I'll get back to you with first draft. And it's like a very, there isn't much of an exchange and it's like, as Lucy said, very cold, a very cold yeah, interaction. Yeah, clinical type of approach. Yeah, and I think, as Natalie said, so you, you've got to find somebody that has a, a real understanding of your business, your industry, and somebody that you get along with. So you find that you can chat about the business and kind of get the business and legal insight that you're looking for. It's no good just getting legal principles from somebody. Like there's an example in in medicine actually that that I often like to use and like in what we kind of do um, is there was once a, um, a, a legal case that went right up to, a, to appeal stage where um, a doctor had charged a specific very high amount for a procedure and um, the client said, well, this is way outside what, what you're allowed to charge me and took them, took him to the, the medical board. It was heard, the whole case was heard. And the, the judge said, yeah, well, actually, Mr. Doctor, you have charged, I mean, a hundred thousand rand outside of what the recommended rate is. And he said, no, no, I haven't. I've charged the fee of 20,000 rand as suggested for the, the operation. The balance of my fee was about knowing what procedure to do and when. And I think that's what you have to look for in, in an attorney is to under, find somebody that really understands your business because anybody, like you said, it's fairly commoditized. Anybody can give you a legal document and anybody can protect you from risk. But if they don't understand your business and the way you do things, a set of legal terms in a document can actually harm you. Totally. Absolutely. We see that a lot because everybody has done a bit of a copy and paste at some stage and I thought well you know what if I'm getting this from my blue chip client if it's good enough for them it's going to be good enough for me except that it's drafted in their favor and if you don't have a legal knowledge or legal background you're probably not going to know how to manipulate it in your favor so what we see a lot of is people are duplicating that kind of agreement and then like um, agreeing to all kinds of things that they shouldn't be because it's drafted for another party. So that's so that's a common thing. But Lucy, what Lucy's saying is absolutely right. And also lawyers can make mistakes and you can get things wrong. But the advantage of being in the industry and working with the same kinds of people is knowing what exactly you're looking for and seeing the same agreements and getting the diagnosis right from the beginning. So there isn't a lot of feeling around because yes, you can go anywhere and a lot of clients will say, okay, well, I'm coming to you because I need a trust document but without being able to explain to them why 
a trust has what advantages it has, why you would implement it, it might not be the right thing for them. So they end up spending that money. It's not actually useful, costing them more money in the long run and then potentially having to redo it for something else. Just using an example. Um, yeah, th- that's exactly right. And we've had that situation many times where we've seen a client and they've said, yeah, well, I, I went to an attorney and I asked them to drop me a trust and I've now got this trust. And we've said, okay, so it's a great trust deed. And yes, you do have a trust, a valid registered trust. However, it's not what you need for this particular um, scheme Thank that you're trying to implement. It's in fact completely wrong. So there are a lot of attorneys out there that will do exactly what you ask. And without finding out, wait a minute, do you know what you need? Because at the end of the day, you aren't the lawyer. You are the expert in your business. It's probably better for me to listen to your business and your idea and tell you what you need rather than the other way around. Mm. NDAs is another one. You know, so I love guys who's like, because I get a lot of people approach me saying, I've got this really cool idea or I'm doing this ICO thing or whatever. So I get pitched a lot. So I'm like, cool, well, let's, you know, tell me what it is now. Because I hate people like, no, no, but let's get together. No, no, you have my attention. You're on the phone. Mm. Like, Mm. tell me what it is now. Well, no, we need to get some NDAs in place. So I'm like, I almost just put the phone down straight away because the guy is an amateur. Do you know what I mean? Because, well, there's a number of things there. But one, an NDA, at least in my experience, is very unenforceable, right? At least from a practice perspective. Yes or no? It depends. Okay. It depends if you're going to take the next step because it, if someone really does run away with your idea, how much is it worth to you to go and actually enforce it in well, a court? That's my point. No one's gonna, I'm not going to run away with yeah. your frigging token energy idea. Do you know what I'm saying? It's yeah. not what I do. If you want my advice, to your point, because I'm the expert at something, then your idea is You should not have client, uh, client attorney privilege or doctor-patient yeah. privilege where you're not going to... Or NDAs that, and then the NDAs that they sent you have been used like twelve times before, and for completely different. And it'll have purposes. clauses in there like, uh, in in the event of like a dispute, um, you will send blah blah via fax to oh one two triple zero six one. You know, and you're like, hang on, what the fuck? Are we living in yeah. like I don't the seventies? So how am I going to serve on you? Yeah, do you know what I'm saying? So it's stuff like that. Um, NDAs. Valuable or not? And if they are valuable, in what context? So so they absolutely do have a place, and they're very valuable in certain situations. Like, for instance, if you're going to go and pitch an idea to a big corporate because you want them to give you funding or because you want to implement something in their business, it's a very good idea to get an NDA because they might listen to your idea and say, you know what, we're going to do that in-house or – you know what, we like your idea, but we like this company and we want them to do it instead of you. So in that situation, an NDA is going to help you because if you don't have it in place, well, you've kind of put it in the public domain then by telling it to them. Um, They haven't stolen it because... It's also more likely that they will keep it as privileged information if they have signed something. There's no telling what anyone can do in any situation because anyone can go and replicate an idea. But there is an agreement that could be acted on, which is obviously putting a person under an obligation that they wouldn't want to infringe. And also I think what we've got to remember is what what the NDA is really trying to protect. A lot of the time it's trying to protect information of sorts because if, if I've got an idea and, or a concept, I mean, unless I'm actually going to patent it depending on what it is or, or trademark it, I can't prevent other people from copying it anyway, whether I've told you about it or you've seen it after I've I've, I've implemented it. So you've got to really think about it. If it's just you're just trying to, if, before you open your mouth to talk about business, you want people to sign an NDA, it's defeating the whole purpose. Mm, totally mm. agree with you. Mm. Um, so, okay, so for me and my business, like I need 
to get a contract drafted, right? So this is for the talent that we manage. So generally, if, we, if you're in the business of brand building, you can't do a single video <laughs> or a podcast. It's something you have to do over a period of months. So I need a contract drafted um, for, for my business. So this is all very new. We launched this service about a month ago. We've got about half a dozen clients. So, and also long-term, I want to sell the talent business on to a potential acquirer. So now that you know that, um, how would you approach working with me to kind of put that document together? So the nature of the service very simply is this. We provide branded content to entrepreneurs or talents or comedians or sportsmen to help position them as experts, authors, et cetera, et cetera. So... Um, and because as I said, we need to be working them for a month. The deliverables very simply are only content. So how do I know, right? And just subjectively here, how do I know how much one should be paying for something like that? Uh, one and two, what's the process that you would work with me, you know, to kind of deliver on that? So thanks for the, on the, the pop quiz, Matt. Uh, <laughs> it depends what you, what are you going to do for them. So you're going to manage the talent, and then you're going to sell it on. Are yeah. you is, so? Is there some transfer of IP? Are you going to be? Are you like in a talent manager? Like be a manager? Are you going to be a labor broker? No, no. Geez. You're creating the content. Yeah, yeah. So so from a costing perspective, I mean, basically that's intellectual property. So I mean, it's it's worth what people will pay for it. But I mean, it's certainly. Not, not a cheap commodity because if everybody could think about it, there wouldn't be a business for you to do it. So not everybody has your thought pr process or concentrates in the line of business that you do. So it's definite, definitely of value. I think what you would have to try and decide is how you want, how many times you want to use a particular piece of content and how, how generic it is. So if you're creating something for a specific business with somebody in mind, you might then put a huge price on it because you might give them that all the rights in that content and then you may not be able to use it again. On the other hand, you might de develop content that you want to roll out at various clients. Then you're going to give people the right, a license, the right to use it, like a license to use the content that you have provided for them, but you will use it elsewhere as well. And I'll retain the copyright. You'll retain the copyright. So some some Can you do that in the in the personal space though? Like if I was if basically if you were my clients um, and I wanted to position you as South Africa's legalese experts, whatever the case might be, providing a whole bunch of branded content there. Like, in, can you legally do that? Where I'm, because yeah. essentially it's like you on camera. <laughs> it's yeah. like you so on you, a podcast. So you, it's, you, in theory, can't own my words because that's what I've created. But but you, but you can own the the, the concept around yeah. promoting a le uh, legal professionals. Mm. So yes, it's as today, tomorrow it's Norton Rose or, or whatever. Mm. Um, the concept is about promoting the legal individuals. So the what you do for us, and maybe we might give you specific content to add into what you're developing for us, that piece of content that we've given to you, we would continue to own. But the idea also itself, you would own. You. Yeah, I exactly. What, I suppose whatever, whatever is agreed to in the document is the exactly. truth, right? Exactly. And, and that's something that we see a lot of is when, because they're working a lot with creative um, industry, when they are required to sign the big corporate contracts, they require them to sign over all the IP, which is not necessarily something that they are allowed to do because they're getting it from another party or that they want to do. Um, and Lucy can expand on that. She has she has good experience share from being on both ends of that when she was both in-house counsel and yeah. 
as outhouse council. <laughs> yeah. So generally, you're going to find that big organisations want to own the IP. So they they commission you to draft uh, to create some sort of content, and they want to own it. Like for instance, let's use an example of sending you to um, the World Cup to take photos and create some sort of proposal or pitch or whatever around those photographs. They want to own everything because they're basically saying, okay, so we're paying for your time. We must own everything that emanates from that time. And that's really not practical. From their side, you've got to understand that, okay, so maybe you're taking a thousand photos in a second. So you sell them one and you sell somebody else the other one but they look almost the same. So you've got to understand that they'd like to protect some of the content that they've commissioned you to do. However, the ideas and the intellectual property that you have around putting this thing together for them must remain yours. Otherwise, essentially what would happen is your business would shut down after you've provided this piece of content to your client because you can no longer use your methodology or anything that you, any of your ideas going forward. Mm. And also, I suppose you'd need to put into the document in the eventuality of a sale of that talent division to an acquirer that the intellectual property, etc., would transfer over to that acquirer, right? Absolutely. Because if at that's a, not at in a premium, there, sorry, at a premium, then, yeah, at a if premium, you're transferring yeah. it. Because also, then the other thing to say would be that in the event, in the event that that was on the table, there was a deal for someone to buy the contract value, essentially, right, which is ultimately what you're selling. And then the talent that comes along with that. But if that contract, uh, sorry, if that clause wasn't in that contract, like the acquirer then could say, well, sorry, Brie, you're going to have to get all hundred of your uh, talent, you know, to re-sign, right, with the new clauses. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it could be. It, it depends what, what the, the sale of the business um, looks like and the details of that, that sale agreement, where if it's sold as a going concern, what, what kind of goes across. But it is important to look at the intellectual property because otherwise you could continue to do the same thing, sell that contract, but continue to use the talent doing other things. So mm. it all comes down to what the intention is when you're selling something or when you're creating something for somebody. What are you trying to do? What do you want to continue to do after this client is gone? What do they want and what do they want to continue to do once you're, once you're no longer working for them or providing something to them? Don't you find that you're in your experience in a service provider client relationship that if you're, if it's new, that if you put a contract on the table and it says, listen, dude, it's 26 pages long, it addresses IP, blah, 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 and a whole bunch of stuff that obviously needs to be included in there, plus the exit agreement clauses or whatever. So you put that 26-page document down on the table. It's a new relationship. That's going to scare clients. It does. It does scare a lot of clients. Look, there's always a place for that 26-page, even 100-page contract in very big deals that have a lot of moving parts and possibly a lot of um, parties involved. It's essential because you need to make sure that everybody is on the same page and that the what the agreement that you think is is actually reflected in in writing. But at other times... It doesn't work. And what we found in the creative industry is that having these kind of big agreements doesn't really work. So we've done some sort of a workaround where we have our clients develop sort of standard terms and conditions with the legal clauses that really need to protect them kind of as the overarching document located on their, their website. And then when they're engaging with a client, they basically sign an addendum or a scope of work with the client that just sets out the service and the price. This and it doesn't go into all the legal jargon that makes the contract 26 pages long. So so two things on that. The one is that 
famous last, last words of the industry are, I just need a one-pager. Yep. <laughs> so if I reduce the font to the smallest it can go, I can try and get it on. I, Try and get around a one pager. Some of that stuff is in there for a reason. And the second part of that is that nobody wants to read Latin in contracts anymore. And whilst there is a reason that that exists, and there are certain maxims that you can't get away from and principles of law, we are definitely advocates for plain drafting and moving away from highfalutin language because it really doesn't serve any party to a contract if neither of them actually understand what's going on and only their lawyers do, um, which will inevitably result in a dispute and litigation and then we've got to go and ask a third party to decide what the actual meaning was of the contract because obviously the parties were not of, um, they didn't have a meeting of minds because they didn't seem to understand it in the first place. So what do I need then? Do I need that online version and you then need, an addendum? Like what do I need? Yeah, so you need online terms and conditions which which kind of set out the rules of engagement. If somebody's going to engage with you, um, these are basically the rules around which they engage you. And then what you need to spend an enormous amount of time on is setting out what exactly it is you are delivering for what price. Because that's where the disputes come from. It's very seldom that you're going to find disputes coming from a, a boilerplate legal clause. Because yes, they're absolutely there for a reason and you need them. But that's not where the disputes lie. The disputes and the confusion lay around what am I getting and how much am I paying? Yeah, and I think what also what we like to try and do is we like to empower our clients to be able to negotiate a lot of their deals on their own. And that's why having terms and conditions in a in a document separate to the actual deliverables and the payment is a good idea because then those we've kind of or your your attorney has drafted for you and they're in your favor and they protect you so it's not something that your client service managers or whoever it is that is signing up these contracts can change every time because that's where there lies more possibility for risk because everyone is doing a different contracts, changing a bit here, changing a bit there. So you have your absolute non-negotiables that we like to set out for our clients in a risk profile. So at the outset of our relationship to understand what what is negotiable and not negotiable in their business and what is the, the minimum that they will accept and how far we can push things. And then to put together a document that they can use as a master document that always has those kind of the, the command, 10 commandments of doing business with whichever organization it is. And then the variables are around the pricing, the structure, the work that is going to be performed in that. Client service or whoever is sales, whoever is concluding the deal can work with, but not be changing things in the contract that have legal ramifications. Yeah, and I think following on from that, a good thing is then when a client does want to change some of your non-negotiables, you're made aware of it because they're now saying, okay, but the scope of work isn't dealing with the transfer of IP and we want to have a transfer of IP. You're immediately alerted to, okay, this is not something I usually want to do. And then, and then we help you make the decision. Okay. So if this client, if this deal is, is a, is a big one and I am prepared to transfer the IP, which I don't normally do, then it's going to cost this client a lot more than I usually charge. And then you're empowered to make the deal that works for you rather than charging the same price. Um, even though it's a big deal, you're still charging the same price because as you would if you weren't transferring the IP. I suppose actually in that kind of a conversation, you start to realize actually where you can leverage your price points. Exactly. Absolutely. And that's, that goes to understanding your business. And once you've understood your risk profile, that will allow you to do that. Okay, that's really awesome. So I want to talk about The Pinch. So The Pinch is a podcast all about this kind of stuff, right? Yep. 
Okay, and what were and so what were the kind of things that really jumped for you from the clients that you interviewed? So we try to do a little bit of a broad cross section, and I think some of them are really fun um, around. So what we mentioned earlier, where we dealt with kind of possible um, disasters in shareholders' agreements, we also deal with disasters of um, employees and real mistakes that employees can embarrassing mistakes that employees can make um, that can really cost the company a lot of money. Um, we also liked, we've also dealt with um, acquisitions of business and being the small party being bought or the, the acquirer and what to look out for in that kind of deal. And we've, we've dealt with real life examples. So our, we've invited clients onto the show that have been in both positions on both sides of the coin. And even so far as we've had an, a specialist in B, B, E, 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 the B.E. Uh, Barnyard. Yeah. Um, to discuss uh, deals of that nature and um, his expertise in that field. So I think it's worth a listen for everyone because I think there's something for everyone and every business owner because they are pertinent to everyone, whether you have one employee or it's just you. There's the, the same kind of risks that arise everywhere. Maybe B.E. is not going to be then necessarily be and it's also it's also quite encouraging to listen to um, some of the stories of our clients that have got very successful businesses and the mistakes that they've made and the learnings that have come out of that and we've discussed it and unpacked it and it's quite it's quite an interesting listen everyone was very candid with us which we were surprised and um, happy about yeah the episode that really sticks in my mind was the one where Cerebra was acquired by the WPP Yes, correct. Yeah, and how they were able to get way more out of that deal from at a brand level um, and what they learned by actually being approached on numerous occasions to be acquired. So if anything, also, guys, go and check out The Pinch. As I said, it's on iTunes. It's everywhere on the internet. Um, even if it's just for your own education so that you can start to understand what the downsides actually are if you don't pay attention to your legal needs. Absolutely. Thanks, Matt. Cool, guys. Thanks for being on the show. Appreciate it. Thanks, man. Thanks for having nice us. Nice to see you again. You know, for most of us, time is what we want most, but what we use worst. So why not let Digital Kung Fu make the most of your time by letting us market you, the brand behind the brand. Check out digitalkungfu.co.za forward slash brand me to get your hands on our curated content packages specifically for busy entrepreneurs. Thanks for checking out the Map Brown Show, guys. And if you'd like to get the Kung Fu put in your ninja, check out digitalkungfu.co.za. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.